the advice and opinions expressed by the host of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. Dr. Doreen grand is the... Dr. Doreen is an expert in autism. Doreen grand Dr. grand Dr. Doreen grand Dr. Doreen grand is a visionary in the field of autism. Now you can ask her questions on Ask Dr. Doreen. Oh my goodness, I'm so happy to be here. Good morning and welcome. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning to... And, and, Welcome to Ask Dr. Doreen on the Autism Network. I'm Shannon Penrod, and I am here with the woman herself, Dr. Doreen Grampuche. We're always so thrilled to have her with us. Uh, if you don't know, she's a true expert in the field of autism, having been working in this field for more than 40, yes, I said four zero years. I know, stop, it can't be, but it is. So get over it, have your feelings, and let's move on. Um, but she's been working in that time period with all different individuals on the spectrum from very young babies up through senior citizens, working with families. She is the most empathetic person that I have met ever in any field doing anything. Uh, I think that, you know, among her many talents, her ability to perspective take is absolutely brilliant. I also believe she can see around corners, but then don't ask me. Uh, she's remarkable in, in her love for our community and her devotion to our community. So we welcome her here. She's going to answer your questions in real time. We are live right now on Facebook, on YouTube, on Twitter, and about a dozen other sites. Good morning, Amanda. Amanda brought her blue hearts. She is already here in the front row. We love that. You guys can be writing in in the chat too. All you have to do is if you're on any of those platforms I just mentioned, just write in on that platform. It shows up here. Uh, if you are watching in podcast, you're still a part of the conversation. We are the number one rated aut autism podcast worldwide. Just saying. Um, but that's really because of you guys, because you guys have written in. Please keep writing in, liking, sharing, and please give us reviews wherever you watch. And Traven is going, our fabulous Traven is going through some of the places where you might be watching the podcast. Um, but you can write in if you're watching in podcast. Please feel free to write into our chat on autism-live.com. I get the starter questions there or from uh, my email, shannon at autism-live.com. Dr. Grampuchet, how are you Hello. this morning? <laughs> I'm great. Thank you so much. I'm actually in Florida, and so here it's the afternoon. But I am very happy to be with you, Shannon, and looking forward to uh, answering a bunch of questions. And you look, you look tanned and happy this morning. I know. You know, it's unbelievable. I spend like maybe, you know, I took my dog for a 30-minute walk on the beach and, this, and I'm dark. I get tanned very, very quickly. It's the Middle Eastern uh, skin pigmentation. I, I used to tan like so easily. I, I think you know I was, I was born in Puerto Rico. Yes. And, um, and I, I'm not heritage wise, I'm not from Puerto Rico, but I was born there. And I, I, when my parents came back stateside, my dad was in the air force. I, I was a brown child forever. I was, yep. I was a brown child. And then I don't know, something happened and all the pigmentation went for me and I can't, really? be the, I can't be in the sun at all anymore. I'm sun sensitive and so uh, now I'm now I'm just uh, a ruddy person. <laughs> yeah. 
I'm just ruddy. That's all I am. Uh, but anyway, good morning to everybody. Good morning, Holly. Good morning, Kirsten. Good morning, Cog. Good morning, Amanda. Again, uh, so thrilled that you guys are here. I have to give the disclaimer that even though I believe that Dr. Grant Pichet is the preeminent expert in autism in our time, there is no expert who could give individual specific advice in this platform because they don't have eyes on the individual. It wouldn't be fair to the individual. And you know that one of my favorite things that Dr. Grant Pichet says is it has to be fair. So we're being fair here, but that doesn't mean you can't write in and ask questions. Please feel free to do that. Parker's already written in a question. We're going to get to Parker's question in just a second. But please, please write in your questions. We'll get through as many of them as we possibly can. There were a few that came in in the night that I that I wanted to get to really quick. First of all, if you watched yesterday's show, you know I went on a rant about how I hate it when people depict people on the spectrum as not having empathy. It just makes me crazy. It's a big lie. We're trying to stamp that lie out. Um, and this next question just goes to show how deeply people on the spectrum care about the people around them. It's just that sometimes they don't know what to do. Yeah, and I, Shannon, sorry yeah. to interrupt you, but Parker just wrote in and he, Parker is like an amazing ex example of how much empathy someone on the spectrum can have. Honestly, Parker, I just love your question. It's fabulous. And I will answer it. Yeah, we'll get, but let me get to this one first, Parker, and then we'll get to you. So um, this is another person who identifies themselves as being autistic. They say, my sister, who is a 35-year-old female, is leaving her husband and is upset. Uh, I want to help, but I'm autistic. What things should I, and he identifies himself as a 28-year-old male, try to do to help her feel better? He also says, I am also a hikikomori agoraphobic social recluse, which makes things harder. She's staying with me and our parents with her two sons at the moment. The two sons are eight years old and four. She was with her husband for about 19 years and they got married about 10 years ago. No one's told me the details of why she's leaving him, but she's told our parents. They understand these things more, I think, and would give better, way better advice than I could give since I haven't had a girlfriend before. All I know is that he did something silly and that they've struggled in their marriage for the past few months. Today, I made pasta as dinner for me and for her. I've also looked after her kids at points in the last two days. I'm not sure if her kids have been told what's going on, but the oldest one isn't stupid and must know that something isn't right. I guess I'm asking for general advice on how to help, but also how should I react to things? I'm sad because I have known her husband for most of my life and we regularly have spoken about computer games and we've been playing together online. Does this mean that I should remove him as a friend on PlayStation Network? Mm. How should I help my sister's in ways that I probably haven't thought of. I mean, yeah. if we could all have a brother like this, how honestly, lucky would we be? Honestly, honestly, she's, she's very lucky to have you as a brother. And that's just everything you wrote in itself is so caring. It's, it's incredible. And I want to say, and I guess some of this also goes uh, to answer Parker's question as well which is, you know, we don't, we all have our own perspectives when something happens that changes us or affects us socially or affects our family. And it's, it's it, the best way to deal with a situation like this is to actually ask, is to ask your sister, how can I help you? Ask her what she is going through. 
Um, and you know what you did, for instance, making dinner for her, her and uh, watching the kids. That is fantastic. That in itself is wonderful because I can tell you I've been through divorce and I can tell you that when we're going through a hard thing like that, the I get I think one of the hardest parts of it is not uh, not showing your extreme sadness to your children or whatever emotion you might be going through, sadness, anger, frustration, whatever. Um, and trying to protect the children from that is a big struggle. So you watching the kids, I think, is something that will definitely be beneficial to her. But there could be a lot of other things that you can do. Sometimes when we're going through hard times, really all we want is just company. We don't want to be alone. We want someone to hang out with us. Maybe we want someone that we can just kind of talk to or tell what we're going through. Um, but honestly, the best thing you can do is ask her and just say, you know, I love you. Express how you feel. Like tell her, I love you. I want to help you. I'm here for you. Tell me what to do. I don't know what to do for you, but I, I care. And then also tell her how you feel about the divorce itself. In other words, I also have a relationship with the person you are divorcing. I don't know if you want me to disconnect from them. Is it okay if I keep that person on my friend list? Um, because I've, I also have some feelings towards this. I've played with this person. I've known them most of my life. Is it okay if I maintain a relationship? Um, I mean, you know, and I got to tell you, this is... Um, I think it's something that happens with all of us. Like, it's very interesting. When I was a lot younger um, and I, uh, I just broke up in a relationship, like a boyfriend that I had, and my parents uh, maintained a very close relationship with the guy. They would, like, <laughs> invite him over and have, make dinner for him and all this sort of stuff. And it was really upsetting to me. Like I was not talking to the guy. Meanwhile, my parents are, are having dinner with him. So, um, and I always remembered that. And I always told myself when my kids are older and they have relationships, I'm going to be very respectful of how they feel. And then interestingly, just yesterday, I think was, or two days ago was the birthday of my son's ex-girlfriend, right? And they were together for three years, a long time. And it occurred to me that I should, I was about to write out, write to her and say, happy birthday, my dear. I hope you're doing well, all this stuff. And it suddenly occurred to me, oh, I'm kind of doing the same thing here. And he might not want me to do that. And so I asked him, do you want me to, is, would you rather I do or do not? And, you know, it ended up that I left it alone, fortunately. So, but, and so that's why I think it's important to have that conversation with your sister and say, what can I do for you? How can I help right now? And also tell me how you, what do you want in regards to my relationship with the person you're divorcing? It's tough. It's tough all around. Any kind of change, as you know, Shannon, especially in the family structure uh, is very difficult to adjust to. Absolutely. Can I throw one more log on that fire that well, I've please, learned the hard please. way? Love is your log. That, that, that no matter what, like you always want to be in support of your sister, obviously, and you can let her know that you're choosing her, but no matter what, 
don't engage in bashing the person that they're leaving. Yeah. And especially not to the children because the children, there's, there's no, nothing healthy about that for them, but also people get back together. Sometimes that happens. And, and, you know, if you say, oh, well, I don't think in this case, cause I think you liked him, but if you say, oh, well, you know what, he's a no good dirt bag. And then they get back together. You've got no place to walk that back. So stay, you know, listen to them, but you don't have to also add in if he's done something that was silly um, or something that was wrong. Yeah. Uh, just listen, don't feed into it. And certainly don't, don't bash that person to the kids. And uh, just remember, I guess that whatever he did may be more hurtful to your sister than it is to you. And or to the rest of the family. And so it's important to respect her feelings, I feel like, because um, and they will change. And and the other thing, you know, also with what Shannon was saying is you may need to distance your relationship a little bit right now with the person. That doesn't mean that's going to be the case forever. A lot of times afterwards, we reestablish some form of relationship with the person who used to be close to us. Absolutely. And now to pivot to Parker's question, which is in the same ballpark, but different. Parker says, hi, Dr. Doreen, here's a question. My mom broke her wrist on Wednesday. We're so sorry to hear that, Parker. And my stepdad has had to take a leave of absence due to it. I don't feel like I'm doing a good job coping with this. I'm caring more about my routines, like Jersey Mike's on Tuesdays. I need help handling this better. This is causing my family a lot of hassle. Please help me to be a better son and to do better. And then he goes, he says, let me add on. My stepdad is also helping me a lot as well. Um, And he is one of those people that doesn't get autism in general. He's a Southern person who believes in rules. I want to help him as well. Please help my family. Also with my sister in college and doing her uh, internships. Externship. Plus, oh, externship. I don't even know what that is. Diagnosis of bipolar. Uh, I'm also afraid that she will go manic again. Sorry for the bother. It's never a bother, Parker. We absolutely adore you. So thank you Honestly, for being Parker. back there. Yeah, you're, you're awesome, Parker. This is not a bother at all. And thank you so much for sharing all of that with us. Um, let's see if we can give you some ideas here. So whenever a tough thing comes up in my life, I like to sit back for a minute and think, okay, what is it that I can or am meant to learn that will help me come out of this a better person. And I feel like almost every, you know, I'll say every single uh, difficult experience in life teaches us something. Sometimes we don't recognize the lesson that it's supposed to teach us. So it keeps going around in cycles and comes back to our life until we eventually learn the lesson. But my feeling is there are two people here in particular that were meant to learn a particular lesson, different lessons. Uh, And that is, you know, like as a result of your mom kind of being um, being taken out of the game for for a little while due to her wrist injury. Um, One person is your stepdad who is learning to be more involved and possibly also learning to uh, help with autism and is learning a little bit more 
open-mindedness regarding autism. So that's the experience he's having. Uh, it sounds like he's he's stepping in a little bit and helping more, which is a really positive thing. And through this relation, through this period of time, who knows, you and he might establish a closer relationship because now he's also helping and understanding some of the things you go through. So he might learn some more and become more aware. So that might be uh, what it means for him. What it means for you, Parker, is maybe this is a fabulous opportunity for you to become a little bit more flexible. And, you know, you're, it's just an opportunity. So you don't have to take this. You can also continue to insist on routines. But I want you to think about the possibility that this is a chance for me. This is an opportunity for me to maybe alter one of my routines, not all of them, one of them. And Jersey Mike's on Tuesday might be the one or it might be another one. You list out, and Parker, I always love how eloquent you are in your writing, honestly. So just write a list of the things that are routines for you. And you being so aware and, you know, you're just such an aware individual that I'm pretty sure you know that these routines, what they are is they give you a sense of safety and security from any kind of anxiety that you might be experiencing as a result of kind of an uncertain world, right? So by the way, just to add to that, look at how well you're, you are handling it great. Like you're here, you're writing to us, you're, you're still Parker and you're doing a great job. So just write out the, the little routines that are meaningful for you um, and see if there's a chance that you can give up one of them this week, just one of them, and maybe one of them next week. And that will be not only a big help for your mom, but it'll also be a learning and progressive experience for you because you will now realize I can actually, when I put my mind to it, I can, uh, I can alter these things. They don't control me. I control them. Right. And the other side of it, Parker, is that understand that what happened is an anxiety provoking situation for anyone, not just you. If I, if my mother broke her wrist, if, she, if any of us had a, had a family member, a close family member uh, become disabled for a period of time and someone who's very active, you know, like if I was the one who broke my wrist, let me tell you, all of my kids who are adults and my husband, everybody's anxiety would go up because they would be realizing how much stuff they have to do that I used to do, right? And so having heightened anxiety is a very normal response to what happened. And that's what you're experiencing. You're experiencing heightened anxiety, which is why those routines become so important to you, because the routines calm your anxieties. See if there are other things you can do to calm your anxieties this week. Just for instance, maybe listening to music. Maybe uh, one of the things is just like... Uh, as our other viewer had written in, maybe there's something you can do around the house where you even establish a adaptive, healthy routine doing it. Like, I don't know, washing the dishes, something that will actually help your mom and stepdad right now. And again, in your case, you could also ask, you can also ask and say, hey guys, 
things have changed. Is there something I can do to help? Can I take out the trash? Can I do the dishes? Can I pick one thing that you can do that will help them? And then that can be your new routine, right? Uh, Give some thought to those things and see if it helps. As always, you have the best advice. Um, and I, and I love, this is one of the reasons, many reasons why I love you is that, you know, you don't ask us to take everything on at the same time. Oh yeah. That that instead, and, and she does the same thing for me, Parker, that when Mm -hmm. I've got a lot going on, she'll say, Hey Shannon, how about if we not try to conquer everything today? How about if you pick one thing? And that's always really helpful when she does that for me, Parker. So I'm glad that you got to hear that too. And I too congratulate you. I think you're doing a great job. Yeah. You know, whatever a parent says to me, um, what can I do to be a better parent? I I go, well, already I know you're an amazing parent because only the people who ask what can I be doing to do more are are the ones who are the really good ones. And for you to say, what can I do to be a better son? You're amazing. Uh, So I love that. I do want to get Susie wrote in a question, which I think, you know, we, we cycle on all the time. Uh, what are some questions to ask when looking for a good ABA provider? Thank you, Susie. Oh, yeah. I think that's a, a perfect question. question. It is. It, that's probably, that's like an area that Shannon and I are both pretty passionate about. So I'm, I'm really glad that you asked. And I'll throw some out and Shannon, please throw some out as well. Um, I guess I would start with finding out about the credentials of the people providing the services. So, you know, it's, I'm not big into, I don't care about licenses or degrees, but having a BCBA or board certified behavior analyst um, kind of gives you some level of assurance that the ABA that is taking place is at least of a higher quality. Um, and those are the individuals who are the supervisors are usually BCBAs. And, and in terms of therapists or individuals who are actually doing the direct work, you should maybe ask and say, how many of your therapists are RBTs, registered behavior technicians, or BCATs, board certified autism technicians? It's kind of important to make sure that these credentials are somewhere there only because you have to go through a ton of training to get these credentials. If someone doesn't have the credential, it doesn't mean they're not good. In fact, some of my favorite therapists don't hold these credentials, but they have 10 years of experience. So that's kind of the other side of it is how much experience do your your therapists have? And if you're hiring therapists, how much training do you give them? That's a really, really important question. Take a look at the training that's given to the individuals. And it cannot be all class time because we learn the best when we're actually doing hands-on practical work, right? So those are some questions, the credentials, the training. And then I think um, I would ask how much parent training and education is provided? Because I think as parents, the more we learn about ABA and what's going on with our child and autism and the treatment program and all of that, the more involved we are, the more we know the the data that is being collected is actually good and accurate. And um, we, we just give it a different level of quality if we're involved as parents. So I would find out what parent training they provide. 
And then I think for me, it's really, really important. Like I, there are some incredible behavior analysts out there. In fact, I'm just about to interact with one of them because I'm trying to help someone open a series of clinics in Saudi Arabia. And there are some providers of ABA who are fabulous at ABA, but they absolutely do not give any credence to anything else. And I, I pull back from that a little bit. I have, I have a hard time with that because, you know, obviously I'm a behaviorist, I'm a doctoral level behavior analyst, but I have, and I'm a psychologist, but I have always known that we're not, this is not a learned disorder and yes, we're changing behavior, but it's a human being. It's a, and this human being has medical needs, dietary needs, sleep-related issues, immune-related issues, pain, gastrointestinal issues. And so for me, those providers of ABA who are open-minded about what else is out there, and they are open-minded about learning and saying, oh, okay, so, well, this child has a lot of dietary issues. I'm going to respect the diet that the child is on. I am going to make sure that we don't mess up this diet. I'm going to make sure the child is also able to receive his occupational therapy because he has sensory needs. I'm going to make sure that I communicate with the physicians involved because this child has seizure disorder or whatever it might be. I think... ABA providers who have a multidisciplinary approach are, in my mind, going to be more successful because they just, you know, they take care of the whole organism, the whole person, rather than looking at it as just a black box with behaviors. So to me, those are some of the more important things. Shannon, what are your thoughts? You know, I I think um, there's so many things, right? Um, but I think one of the things that you have to ask out the gate is how much availability do you have for, for therapists? If I prioritize ABA and say that I'm going to get my child to be with your therapists for the number of hours that the prescription is written, can you fill that prescription? Um, or, or are you only able to do half of it? I think you need to know going in. And I'll tell you what else, why I think that that's a good question to ask, because I think you need to set the tone with your ABA provider and let them know you're taking it seriously. Yeah. Because, because that would be my first question. And then my second question would be as much as we're going to prioritize ABA, we want to know that you're working in a multidisciplinary um, way. But I think if you, my fear is that if you start with the multidisciplinary question um, that they'll be afraid, because we, we see a lot of families, I'm sure, you know, Dr. Grampichet that they're like, well, we'll do ABA, but we'd like to do eight hours of ABA and we're going to do 10 hours of equine therapy and we're going to do speech and OT, but we only have time for 10 hours of ABA. Whereas, I mean, if I, you know, if I could give you anything, I would say to you, depending on, let's say your child has a prescription for 30 hours of ABA, I would tell you to go do the 30 hours of ABA and then go do the 10 hours of equine therapy. Make sure that you do the speech and the OT and you do all of them. Yep. Um, and you'll be on a treadmill, but in a couple of years, you'd be like, "Woo! wasn't, wasn't that amazing? Look where we are now. Oh yeah. But, but I think it, I think a lot of ABA providers have gotten used to parents who are not committed. So I would lay that groundwork first and tell them you're committed. Are they, 
Are they going to take it as seriously as you are? Because I think that sets a tone. Yeah. But then, but then I don't know how to ask this question, Dr. Grampuche, but one of the things that I walked away with a couple of weeks ago, um, and I want to know from you, how do you ask? I want to know how do we find out that they're going to look at it and with your eyes and say, is it fair? Because I see a lot of ABA providers yeah. who don't yeah. understand that. So yeah. what's the question that would get to that to see if they, if they understand that concept? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, so here's the problem coming, you know, and I'll, I'll, I'll put on my ABA hats for a minute. Right. Okay. And I'll say, and by the way, Gina has written in and said, good morning. What is ABA? Ooh, I, I love that. Applied behavior analysis, Gina. And I will, after I finish this question, I'll probably talk about that for the next 15 minutes or so. So just bear with me, Gina. Yeah, stick with us. But um, so as a provider, I want the parents to know that the minute you start asking a lot of questions, a lot of the providers become defensive. Yeah. And they are in a position right now where there's like a huge need, right? I mean, there's wait lists everywhere. And so it, it's a little problematic to make them defensive because they're kind of, uh, providers are in a very arrogant space right now. And they're kind of mm -hmm. like, it's got to be my way. And, you know, you got to just deal with it. And that's that. And so it's very, very hard. And what Shannon also said is very true is like a lot of these providers don't even have time so they will take you on as a patient and then they're supposed to provide you 20 hours and they provide you 10. That's a problem too. But there, I don't know that there's a question that will help determine if the person, if the provider is looking at things in a fair way. And what we mean by that is this, you never want your child to go through an intervention that doesn't make sense to you. So they, the tr provider will have, must have taught it to you and explained it to you first. That's really important. I would never do anything with any of my kids if the parents didn't understand exactly what I'm trying to accomplish. Because sometimes the kids will go through, and some of you will know this, they'll go through hours of crying. And your ABA therapist will say, or BCBA will say, let them cry. It's okay. But as a parent, none of us are willing to let them cry unless we know why we're doing that. Unless we know that we're letting them cry because if we don't, then they're learning to cry as a form of communication. And they, they, we, it's important that we understand all of this. And then we as parents, like when I observe Shannon is when I really learn whether someone is treating a child fairly, because the amount of, I guess, stress, ABA is all about teaching a lot of stuff, right? I want to teach you not just to challenging behaviors are not okay, but I want to teach you all the right language, all the right social, all the right adaptive all the stuff you need to become your own age level. So I'm going to give you intensive tutoring. So there's a lot of demand. There's a lot of pressure. So at the same time, there's got to be tons of reinforcers. That's how you make it fair. If you are pushing a child, you need to make sure they're feeling really rewarded as well. And then the child will let you know if it's fair because the children who are getting good ABA are generally happy. 
they're not going through a rough time forever. Maybe the first six months when they're adjusting is a little tough, but they're generally actually looking forward to it because that's where they learn and that's with how they benefit. So Shannon's right. It's very important to make sure you have a fair program so your child is not continuously unhappy. They have moments of stress, but they also have moments where they feel very accomplished and feel good about themselves. And are having fun. And they're having a great time. Exactly. So I would say, Shannon, along with that, you made me think that a good ABA program has a lot of meetings with the team. That is important for supervisors to change the program continuously. Like when I work with a child and if the child is having a really hard time and it's already two weeks of that, I'm going to change the program. I'm not going to blame the child. I'm going to say there's something wrong with the way we're teaching. We either have to increase the reward, we have to make it easier. And we have to make sure this child is looking at the model and learning. So modifying your program constantly is a really key feature of a good ABA program. Actually, Shannon, didn't we write about this? We did, and I just haven't published it yet, but it's coming. I'm gonna, I, I, I know, I keep saying that, but it's April is coming. I, know, I, I gotta get it published it. in April. <laughs> yeah, great. I, I, you should, everybody should fire me. Everybody mm-hmm. should write in and fire me if I don't get it published in April. It's just like heinous and there's no excuse. So I'm not making any. Um, anyway. Uh, but so maybe we can tell Gina because Gina's like, okay, you just talked about this, but I don't know what it is. And and every once in a while, we need to okay. go back to basics. What is ABA? Ooh, I love that one. So it's so fun to talk about what is ABA. ABA is the, it's, it's, it says applied behavior analysis, and it is based on the area of psychology called operant conditioning. It's a part of psychology. And all it's, it's kind of a learning technique, a teaching technique, right? But it's based on operant psychology, operant conditioning, which says any behavior that is followed by a reinforcer is going to increase. And any behavior that is not followed by a reinforcer or reward is going to decrease. Now, forget about autism for a minute and just apply that to normal behavior, life, right? So you go to work. That's the behavior. And what maintains that behavior? Why does why do you continue to go to work? Because you get paid. That's your reward. You get paid. Now, sometimes get you, the amount you get paid is not enough, but your social environment at work, your friends and colleagues adds to the reward. And bottom line, the reward, the reinforcer becomes enough to keep you going to work. If you were, if suddenly you didn't get a paycheck, trust me, you wouldn't go to work. Most of us will not go to work if we don't get something out of it. Okay. Now, and you could be getting other rewards out of it aside from money, obviously. So now take that concept and how do we apply that concept to autism and the treatment of autism? We list a bunch of symptoms or behaviors that we see in the individual. For example, this child is not doesn't have enough language skills, doesn't have enough social skills, doesn't have enough play skills, but they have too much uh, tantrums. They have too much aggression. They they're communicating with really a lot of challenging behaviors. They run away. They hit. They fight. All that. 
right? So I want to decrease these and I want to increase these, right? I want to decrease those challenging behaviors and I want to increase those skills that are a little bit behind. So what do I do? The ones that I want to decrease, I make sure the child doesn't get rewarded when they do those behaviors. What does that mean? That means whenever a child tantrums, I figure out why they're tantruming. Are they tantruming because they want to try to gain access to an object, like get a toy from another child? Are they tantruming because I just told them we have to get ready and go and they don't want to go? There's always a reason. And I do the contrary to that reason. For instance, if the child wants to get access to a toy when they tantrum, I make sure they don't get access to the toy. And that teaches the child over time, hey, every time I tantrum, it's I don't get any kind of reward out of it anymore. Remember the concept? Reinforcer is not there. So that behavior goes down. As that behavior goes down, it also is super important that I teach appropriate skills, this side of the angle, right? So all of these things, the social skills, the language, the play, the adaptive, all of these things that are behind, you model them and you get the child to do them and then you reward them. And so these are increasing. So you're teaching adaptive skills at the same time, you are reducing these challenging behaviors and then you get to kind of a balance, which is what we find in your typical kids, right? When your typical kids, they also tantrum, They just don't always tantrum when they want to communicate. And we try to make it so that our children learn to use their language, their social skills, et cetera, instead of these challenging behaviors. And then that's kind of ABA. And then, of course, it gets more advanced as the child ages. And the idea with ABA is to get the child to a point where they can just learn from general education and keep going. And I just want to say, in case they didn't get it, because it was so eloquent what you were saying. So... Mm -hmm. Because a lot of times people miss the finer point that you you don't just say, no, I'm not going to give you the toy for the tantrum. Over on the other column, you're teaching them how to appropriately ask for and get the toy. Did everybody right. get that? Because right. that's what's key. Because when I'm the child, if I've learned that if I throw the tantrum, grandma gives me the lollipop, right? Then I'm going to throw the tantrum because I want the lollipop and that's what's required. And if I find that every time I throw the, the, the tantrum, I don't get the lollipop. But if I just nicely say, can I have a lollipop? Then grandma gives it to me. It is easier yeah. for me to ask for it than to throw the tantrum. Yeah, Once I've key. learned how. That's key. And, and that's important because you don't have to also like a lot of times I'll say that, Shannon, and then a parent will come back and say, but my child's nonverbal. It doesn't matter. Your child does not have to say, can I please have the lollipop? They can point to an icon of a lollipop. And every child can learn to do that. And that gesture, that particular touch an icon, touch a picture of a lollipop, touch the lollipop, that kind of thing is going to be easier than the effort it takes to tantrum. And it is very, very important to teach those replacement skills. Well, it's fair. And it's fair. It's fair. This is the thing. That's right. And if you don't, let me tell you, you'll know right away because your child will stop that the tantrum, but they'll do something else, which is maybe they'll throw an object now or something like that. So it's super important to to make it fair and positive. Yeah. Good ABA is going to give them the skills to get their needs met. 
I think this is what people miss out on all the time. Um, But it has to be fair or that's not happening. Um, So I so, so, so appreciate that. Okay. Uh, Back to our questions here. Uh, uh, NH says that they've got a four and a half year old who speaks mostly in four to seven word sentences. They can answer many interverbal questions, which woohoo, that's fantastic, including how and why, and has good, albeit still delayed vocabulary, but he still struggles to have a conversation. She goes on Mm -hmm. to say, when is it reasonable? When is a reasonable expectation for when he could converse? He just wants to talk about his interests, which is fine, but I also want to have a conversation someday. She, all, They also say, oh, and he has lots of different questions uh, for us, although that only happened in the last few months. Uh, it's trouble sustaining back and forth. I'm sending you a hug. Uh, Dr. Grampuche, go on in. So this is super exciting, um, NH. I want to tell you, like, you're at a very, very good place, and this is... I love that place. I wish I could. I was still treating kids and I would take your child because this is such a fun place to be. Okay. So I have a lot of thoughts about this. First of all, don't worry. You're in the right place. Don't panic. Um, Let him develop his conversations around the topic that he likes right now. Because my assumption is that you haven't done a whole lot of work on theory of mind. I don't know. But a lot of these things, when you get to this advanced of a level where your child is, there's a lot of things that have to happen kind of together. And then they they come together in a solution. And I'll give you some examples right now. So like you're working on intraverbals and that's fabulous. That means he can have conversations of, of an abstract nature about things that are not physically present in front of him, except they just have to be the subject that he likes. When it's the subject that he likes, what is he doing? He's not taking anyone else's perspective. And that's a problem when it comes to social behavior, because, you know, how many kids are going to hang around and let you dominate the conversation and just talk about whatever it is you want to talk about? Kids are going to expect some level of interaction and taking turns and and perspective taking, right? You will need to work on him understanding other people's perspectives. There's a series of lessons that we would normally do. I got to write all, I got to publish this, Shannon, because it's just, you know, it's so important to talk about these things. Like, I bet you, your child, if you asked your child, throw a party for me, okay, mom. He And then you'll say, okay, who are you going to invite? Let's draw who's going to come to this party. Everybody will be his friends. There'll be, you know, kids' toys there. He will have a very hard time seeing the world from your perspective or anyone else's. So you're going to have to start doing activities that will help the child see that different people have different desires different beliefs, different knowledge, different perspectives, different sensory perspectives even. And as your child learns that area, which is called cognition and metacognition and other, like learning about other people's perspectives, as he learns that, then this whole concept of conversing about things that are not necessarily interesting to him will start to take shape. But he's only four and a half. So the good news is this area of perspective taking begins around four and a half in typically developing kids. So do not worry 
because you're on the path to learn. He's on the right path. He's right where he should be. And he's, you just need to point out, keep asking him questions like, oh, look, look at that little girl and she's crying. What do you think happened? Like, and prompt him and let him start pondering those ideas. Oh, maybe she got hurt. Well, what could have happened? Did she fall off her bike? Did somebody say something mean to her? Start getting him to think how other people feel. And, and that's a very important, that's just one phase of the whole perspective taking thing is how others feel. And as you're getting him to notice a lot of that sort of stuff, now on the language side, on the conversation st- side, you're going to have to teach him to start expanding. Now, and, and it'll be the topic of his choice. Get to a point where you can, and by the way, I'm guessing he's also able to maybe visually follow some cues. I don't know if he's able to read. A lot of our kids at that point are reading. If you can somehow teach him that you will say a sentence, then he has to say a sentence, then you will, then he will. Like, for example, you can do it as a lesson. Like, we we had several lessons that were called statement questions, statement, statement, that sort of thing. So I would say, I had toast for breakfast. Then I would prompt the child to say what he had. And then I would say, my breakfast was delicious. And then I would prompt the child to, to tell me how he felt. And so this, this is how you start to build interactive conversation, is getting the child to understand that there are, you know, ter- you take turns. It's like sharing, turn-taking, but in language. And there's tons of lessons that can help with this sort of thing. Um, in our, the curriculum that we wrote was called Skills. I'm not sure if it's available online. Again, I heard it is. You might want to look at look it up, Skills for Autism. If it is online, I highly recommend it because you'll be able to go in there and see a whole bunch of activities that will help your child get to conversation. Now, everything I said is only conversation with you or conversation with like a therapist. This has nothing to do with conversation with other children because that comes later. That's another phase of once he has to get better, again, this goes back to what Shannon was saying, always do one thing at a time. He has to get better at conversing with you, taking turns with you, and going on a different subject. And as he improves there, then you can introduce other kids, and then one other kid, <laughs> and then you can work it with one other kid, and then multiple other kids. But for now, Allow him to stay on his subject as long as he starts to take turns and and increases it. It can't always be the same thing. And by the way, the same statement. And by the way, the fact that he's asking a lot of questions is a good thing. It'll drive you crazy for a while, but that's okay. Yeah, I, I'm. I the reason why when I was saying certain things and I was smiling so bright because I knew they were really good signs, and I know it's a very exciting time for you. And when, when you're able to do interverbals and ask those questions, oh, it's such an exciting time. I know, I know though, that when I was there, I was like, well, when are we going to get to the point when he can write a 22 page term paper? It's just so hard to be in the moment, but I appreciated when other people went, oh no, you're right on schedule. So you're right on schedule. We're sending you hugs. It's going to be good. 
Yeah, and I just want to say real quickly because I saw the next uh, uh, that NH had also written that I read a lot of books to him where we talk about the characters' feelings and motives. He's good with feelings, but not as much with understanding their motives or beliefs or knowledge, which is fabulous. And you can give him choices. The best way to teach kids is give them choices. When we just ask a question, recall of a concept they're not familiar with is hard. But if you give them choices, like for instance, you can say, so do you think she did that because she wants to help or because she's mad at him? That kind of thing. If you give him choices, he'll start to put it together and fill the gaps. Wonderful. Uh, We had a question that came in last night. What's the best way to get my son uh, away from using a sippy cup? He's only two years and three months old. That's kind of young. I mean, so what I did with, you can buy some sippy cups where the top of the sippy cup is just soft plastic or it's relatively soft. And what I would do with my kids who had sensory issues, so they kind of really wanted something that that was in their mouth, was I would very gradually cut the whole of the sippy cup a little bit more, a little bit more. So it got to a point where it was super wide and then I would just remove the thing and they wouldn't even know. Like, and you just make it wider, 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 wider. And that's the way to go. But I'm not sure, um, just try it and see. You, you want to make sure that you're not doing something that's going to cause the child to stop drinking. Yeah, and yeah. sometimes our kids really want their CP cups because of the sensory feeling in their mouth. So test it out. Two, two and three months is pretty young for me. I got to say, um, you'll get there eventually, but do you need to do it then? Uh, somebody else wrote in and I'm, uh, by the time this was last night, but I'm sure by this morning, they've already been to the doctor, but the question is still valid. They said, hello, my three-year-old is not feeling well at all. He has a horrible runny nose, a wet cough now for two days. He just looks miserable and I haven't been able to help him. Just checked his temperature and it says 100.6. I just can't get him to swallow any type of medicine and it's making me so sad. He only drinks water and milk. So I've tried mixing medicine in there, but he notices and he won't take it. He doesn't eat applesauce or yogurt, so I can't mix it in there. He has an appointment tomorrow, which would be today at 9 a.m. I just wish I could get him to take medicine. How do you guys do it? when your kids are sick and don't like medicine. Yeah, this is tough. Uh, did the parents say how old he is? Three. Three, yeah. Yeah, God, let's just start by saying that there's nothing worse than when our kids are that sick. Like, it's just awful. It's just awful. Yeah. And this is a little guy, and he's not feeling well. 100.6, I think, is what she said is not yes. too bad. Right. But here's the issue. Sometimes we... Sometimes it's a lot easier to teach certain things when they're not sick, which then become useful when they are sick. So what I'm going to suggest to you, it's up to you if you want to try it now. Um, And if he's not feeling too good right now, might not be the right time to teach. Because when we're that sick, a lot of things just, it's hard to learn, right? Who wants to work when they're sick? But here's how you do it. You basically have to identify, and this is the whole concept of behavior and ABA, is that you have to identify powerful reinforcers. If you don't have powerful reinforcers, you just pack it up because there's no way you're going to teach. 
And powerful reinforcers can be a variety of things. So for instance, in, in a case where the child is sick, uh, you know, a, a reinforcer could be something cooling for his throat, like ice cream or, uh, you know, uh, frozen yogurt or a popsicle. That might be something that he wants. On the other hand, sometimes when kids have sore throats or are not feeling well, they prefer something hot like oatmeal or uh, soup or whatever it is. We have to identify kind of what is a powerful reinforcer. And I'm going mainly with foods right now because when we're sick, we don't really find too many things to be rewarding. You know, we're not interested in our books or this, that, or the other thing. But essentially, then what you do is, and this is why it's important to do this when he's not sick, because the key medications for cold, for instance, are going to be things that are pretty harmless outside of the cold. In other words, let's say you have, um, you know, either ibuprofen or acetaminophen. So that's Advil or Tylenol or Motrin or Tylenol, one of those, right, that you're going to give a three-year-old in liquid form. And then the other thing is probably going to be something for a sore throat or a cough, like let's say Delsim or something like that, which is guanfis. It's not a big deal. And maybe you want to also be able to teach him to blow his nose, um, which we talked about actually last week, and I'll talk about again. And you want to teach him to take maybe saline through his nose so you can wash out his nose. If you do those three things, most kids recover from a cold over that, right? So whether you're trying it when he's sick or not, it's totally fine to actually teach him to take those medications even when he's not sick because they're not intense medications. And the way that you do this is you take, you know, usually we use droppers with our three-year-olds or later on you can give him one of those little cups but if he's not used to it, you're going to use one of those droppers, those big ones that have a funnel on the end. And you're just going to take a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of, let's say, the Motrin. And you're going to have in front of you a spoon of ice cream. And you're going to say, do you want the ice cream? Take this first. And you get him. And it might not, he might not be happy about it, but in the, you just have him try it once or twice where you give him a tiny bit of the Motrin and then he can have a whole bowl of ice cream. And then tomorrow you're going to do a tiny bit more of the Motrin and a bowl of ice cream. And gradually over time, you will increase, and this really just depends on him. And there's going to, it's not, it's not necessarily a pleasant experience. But it is followed by a pleasant experience, which is the ice cream, right? So a lot of kids, you have to go at whatever the child's kind of tolerance level is. So you basically will give him more and more of the medication to the point, to the dosage level, up to the dosage level, followed by less and less of the ice cream. Because we don't want to have to like every single time give our children a bowl of ice cream, right? So you just reduce it a little bit so that it's manageable. But the bottom line, this goes back again to that whole being fair thing, yeah. is it, you can't always teach it when the child is sick. But the concept is make it fair, reduce the amount of medication that you're asking them to take and increase the reward 
that becomes a level of fare. Then over time, you can increase the medication and reduce the reward because they get used to it. And just in as if you think about it, like life, right? We get used to doing more and more for the same amount of reward in, in life. So it's a general process, a gradual process, but it is super, super important uh, to do. The blowing nose thing, I'll be very quick, is basically you just start with a tissue. You hold the tissue in front of the uh, child's mouth and nose and you tell them to blow. And you can model it like, like that. And you can use other things like a candle or uh, a, one of those party favorite things initially if the child doesn't know how to blow. But you get to a point where they will blow and the tissue moves, right? And then you will get to the next stage, which is you tell you hold their mouth and you tell them blow with your nose to make the tissue move. And then they'll go like that and the tissue will move. And now they know how to blow with their nose. And as they do that, stage three is you just take the tissue closer and hold it and then tell the child to blow. And that way you'll get some stuff out. Until then... I recommend, and it's not pleasant, but it is a way of, is just using either a neti pot or saline spray just to make sure that you're washing stuff out. Because a lot of times with our kids, if we don't know how to blow, they end up just getting sinus infections, which can be problematic later on. Absolutely. Amanda's written in. Amanda's written in and said that um, suppositories for pain relief. Some kids you can That's do that, true. other kids you can't. Um, and that now they have patches that are patch MD that um, also have vitamins and other me- medicines in them. I didn't know that. And that she's also seen parents put a pill in a banana or hide it in other foods. I will tell you that for us, we sort of focused on everything outside the body. We would use medicines when when we had to, but we what I did was I got a really good vaporizer that has the little oh, yeah. cup in it to put um, things in. Like and, eucalyptus and menthol stuff. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. I will tell you, not that I want to advertise them here. It's the only thing I've ever bought from Arbonne. They sell, uh, it's a canister of uh, menthol and things that you put in the little thing and it Man, it'll loosen up anything and anybody. It's the greatest stuff ever. And believe me, it's expensive. Um, But we also, whenever my son would get a fever, we would take um, the softest washcloth that we had and not cold water and not hot water, just room temperature water and, and just wipe him down. And then once, once you wipe them down, you wrap them up in a quilt and they, it like breaks the fever. It's kind of amazing how it works and they feel so comfortable. Like it's a little bit uh, while you're doing it because they'll go, ah, because it feels weird. But then the relief that they feel is amazing. We focus on all of the outside stuff. Um, But sometimes you have to do medicine. Sometimes it's absolutely essential. So please follow um, anything and everything that is helpful there. We're out of time. I don't know how this happens, but we're out of time. And, and that makes me sad because we didn't get through everything. But I apologize to anybody whose questions we didn't get to. You can't even imagine how much we appreciate you guys. Dr. Doreen is going to be back next Tuesday. I want you guys to know that on tomorrow's show, we're talking with uh, an autism dad who's invented um, bed pods. 
um, that help create a sensory experience in which kids feel safe and want to stay in their beds. So we're going to be yeah. talking with him about that. That's so that's cool. Isn't that, they're called yeah. Z pods. And so right. I don't know a whole lot about them except that they look like they came right off of a spaceship. So the kids love them. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to, we're going to be talking with him tomorrow. And um, then on Thursday, on Thursday's show, let's talk autism with Shannon and Nancy. Nancy and I, for the first time, are welcoming Aviva Paskowitz from the Ed Asner Center. She's an artist. She's the coolest thing there is and works with individuals on the spectrum to express themselves artistically. And it's nice. the work she does is amazing. So we're excited about that. And then next week, it's just full craziness because it, I, it's, it's the first week that will actually on Friday be um, in April. But so the lead up to it, Next week, on Monday, we have Dr. Jed Baker, who I've talked about before on the show that I, I think is is wonderful. Um, he wrote No More Tantrums, but he also wrote the book on treating anxiety on teenagers that I recommend to everybody. Um, he's going to be here with us live on, on Monday. Then we have Dr. Grampichet on uh, Tuesday and Wednesday. and th- It's just, it's insane. And, and when you guys see who we're having on in April, we already have Holly Robinson Peake going to be joining us. Wow. We have Temple Grandin going to be joining us. We have Stephen Shore going to be joining us. It's going to be it's going to be off the chain, you guys. We're really really excited about it. So all of that coming up. Make sure that you're um, subscribing to our channel so that you get notifications because it's too much. It's too much. So oh, yeah. Shannon, I don't know if you've already told the viewers that we're shortly moving back to the. Which is very exciting. I posted the first picture the other day from the studio. I was so hopeful on St. Patrick's Day because, you know, the walls are going to be all green. I was so hopeful that I was going to be able to show you my new favorite green place, but um, it was still the primer. But I did post a picture on Facebook of our, our new studio and we are expecting to move in on April 1st. It won't, we won't be doing shows there April 1st, so but exciting. later in April, it's so exciting, you guys. And it's bigger and better. And we're, we're just a Twitter about the things we're going to be able to do there, which reminds me, I said all those things. Don't forget, if you can't get enough of Ask Dr. Doreen, which is all of us, tune in to Ask Dr. Doreen. You can go there right now and ask her a question. She is on TikTok. TikTok. Believe um, it or not. It really is 2022, isn't it? Dr. Doreen is on TikTok. Now I've heard everything. Um, but it's amazing um, how fun it is. I now love TikTok because I, I've never done TikTok before. But, you know, there are a lot of crazy videos and I get to see all the things that the pet dogs do. And every time I watch something like I'll get two videos in and then the next video is Dr. Doreen telling me something. And I go, look at that. TikTok knows me. They know what I like. Um, uh, the last question they want to know, are you seeing kids right now? Uh, I am, but I'm very, very sporadically in LA. So it's really, really difficult for me to see kids right now. I think I will probably start seeing kids again just for maybe diagnosis and maybe for some evaluation or guidance, like kind of like we do on the show, uh, maybe in uh, April, later in April, once our office is set up. So we'll keep you updated for sure. And hopefully my schedule will open up and I'll start seeing more kids. All right. That's all we have time for today. Thank you to Dr. Grampy Shea for everything always. And thank always you. a pleasure. 
And thank you to all of you and all the amazing things that you're doing with your lives. We just really appreciate getting to spend this time with you. We'll be back tomorrow talking about those Z-Pods. Until then, give your kiddos a hug for me and one for you too. Bye-bye for now. Bye.